Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. podcast and i'm fired up for this one i haven't done this in a while but i always enjoy it i think i've done three or four of these but it is another edition of take a palooza it's just an unloading of takes rapid fire style on a variety of things from yours truly it's always fun for me i got about like i think 15 or 16 different takes here so let's do it take a palooza here we go all right first take i want to talk about baylor shireman uh, he he's I, I got a hoop start out the gates, and we'll get some football stuff. But Baylor Shireman, stud from South Dakota State, so he entered the transfer portal about a week ago, and he's also enter, entertaining the NBA draft. But I get the sense in reading different things and and all that that he's likely going to be back in college basketball next year. And everyone in the country, and I mean everyone, is trying to land Baylor Shireman. Uh, and and the reason I bring him up is because he's from Nebraska. He's from Aurora. And according to reports today, I'm taping this, it's Wednesday, uh, April 27th. It's about 8 o'clock at night here. According to reports, he's trimmed his list of schools that he is interested in transferring to, to about 10, and two of those schools are Creighton and Nebraska. So a little bit about Shireman, uh, just his game. The dude is a stud. I mean, one of the most fun players to watch in college basketball. 6'6", six, six, uh, elite passer, elite feel, and he's got a swagger and flair for the game that is just fun to watch. Uh, he led South Dakota State to a Summit League title. The Jackrabbits this year, they went 30-5 and and 18-0 and in the Summit League. They were a 12 seed. They lost to Providence in the first round. But Shireman is without question one of the best players in the transfer portal. He, it, here are his numbers. So 18 points per game, almost eight rebounds a game, four and a half assists per game. Here is shooting splits. 50% from the floor, 46% from three, 80% from the free throw line. So dude is a 50-40-80 guy. Plus, he's got a two-to-one assist to turnover ratio. And not all assists are created equal. He drops dimes around the back, lobs, length of the floor passes. Like, dude dude just has a flair for the game. But I bring him up because he's considering Creighton and Nebraska, and he's a Nebraska kid. And with both the schools, man, I, the first person I thought of was Fred Hoiberg when I saw he hit the portal. I was like, man, if I'm Fred Hoiberg, I am doing everything, and I mean everything I can do to get that dude. Hopefully, maybe you can put together some NIL deal for him and maybe play the Nebraska, come home card with him, all those kinds of things. So certainly Nebraska needs as many guys that can kind of take them over the top, and Shireman's one of those guys that is a difference-making dude. Uh, so if, if you're Fred Hoiberg, you got to be all over this kid on a variety of levels. As far as Creighton, Creighton in their situation is really interesting. First of all, 
I guess on a on a, when like when I first saw Shireman hit the portal, I actually wasn't sure if Creighton would pursue Shireman just because Creighton's kind of loaded and they bring back so many guys. But the reality is, Shireman's too good to not go after and take if you can. He's just too good. You take him, you figure it out. And I'm telling you, I think Creighton's got a shot with 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 this with with Shireman. And here's why. Eric Henderson the South Dakota State coach, who's Baylor Shireman's coach at, at South Dakota State, is really close, really tight with Greg McDermott. Like, Greg McDermott, he's one of uh, the Greg McDermott coaching tree guys. Like, they are super close. Henderson was a, was a graduate assistant for Greg McDermott. Those two guys are tight. Greg McDermott is Henderson's kid's godfather. So, just right there, that gives Greg McDermott an in. Right? Like, Henderson's probably going to have a, you know, if if Shireman's going to bounce things off him, he's going to vouch for Greg McDermott. Also, the style of play. Easy selling point. Shireman fits it perfectly. Plus, Creighton in Nebraska as well, obviously. So you can play the coming home card too if you're Creighton. And then lastly, Shireman will be joining a preseason top 10, top 15 type team that is loaded with really fun guys to play with. Nemhard, Trey Alexander, Kaluma, Ryan Kalkbrenner, like really fun dudes to, to go out there and hoop with. So there's a lot to sell there and a lot of connections for Creighton and Nebraska as well. But I'm just saying for Creighton in particular, man, there's a lot to sell. This is certainly a story I'm going to be keeping an eye on. All right, next take. Stick with Creighton for a second. So uh, Creighton landed the the TCU transfer, um, Francisco Farabello. And, you know, he's about a 6'3", 6'4", foreign kid. He's a shooter. He's tough. He's smart. He he gives a shit on defense, which is what you want. And he can shoot it. He's skilled. Uh, so I think Greg McDermott was really trying to go find someone to kind of fit that Alex O'Connell role, some guy that can, you know, chase guys around defensively off screens and then run off screens offensively and space the floor. Um, but it'll be interesting. That's why the Shireman thing is is someone to keep an eye on. Like, the reality is Creighton returns a lot, but the only two guys that kind of consistently got buckets for Creighton all last year were Hawkins and O'Connell. Everybody else was a little up and down. Took a while for Trey Alexander to go into Kalumo was a little inconsistent. Nemhard kind of hit a wall in the middle of the year. And, you know, he's a scorer, but not really. He's more of a distributor. You know, and Kalkbrenner's offensive game came alive, but I don't know if Kalkbrenner's ever going to be like a huge scorer. So they need somebody to kind of go get buckets, as weird as that sounds. Maybe they don't. If, you know, if Alexander and Kaluma kind of continue on their ascent and their trajectory that they're progressing on, maybe they're going to just slide into being consistent, you know, mid-teen scorers per game kind of guys. But I don't know. But Farabello fits the mold of, of the O'Connell space to floor kind of thing. And I've always said, shooters, shooters are like bacon. They work with everything, right? Should we put bacon on it? Yes, it works. Bacon with the omelet? Yes. Bacon on the pizza? Yes. Bacon on the cheeseburger? Yes. It's like shooters with that team? Yes. Shooter with that team? Yes. That's Farabello. The other thought I had with Creighton is it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this team handles expectations. You know, I just said, this is talking about a team that's a preseason top 10, top 15 team. And last year, they were 
you know, preseason pick to finish eighth in the Big East. Especially now with, with Jay Wright retiring with Nova. That'll be one of my takes coming up a little later on. I want to give some thoughts on Jay Wright and his retirement with Villanova. But with, with him retiring, I think Creighton's going to be the preseason pick to win the, the Big East. And a year ago, they were picked to finish eighth. No one knew what to make of them. There were no expectations on that team. So it's one thing to do something when nobody expects you to do it. It's another thing to do something when everyone expects you to do it. And the other thing that, that'll be interesting for Creighton next year is like, and this right or wrong, I'm not saying this is necessarily right, but when you have expectations on you, sometimes just winning isn't enough. Like, it's how you win and how you look when you win. For instance, I talked a bunch, like, Creighton had to grind to beat Kennesaw State and Arkansas Pine Bluff and Southern Illinois and SIU Edwardsville. Like, they won, they won those games, but I'm going to tell you, like, if they have those kinds of performances, even if they win next year, there's going to be a lot of, hey, what's wrong with Creighton? See, see the difference? That's where that expectation thing is, is unique. It'll be interesting to see how they handle it. All right, next take. I got uh, th- th- this e- an email sparked this thought. It was, a, it was a long email, so I won't read it all. Sorry, Patrick, but it was an interesting thought from an emailer, Patrick. He concluded, basically, paraphrasing, that NIL and the transfer portal actually could be what saves Nebraska football. And I'm reading this email. I'm like, man, that's, pretty, that's like an interesting thought. Because the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, he might be onto something. And in his email, he 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 hit both on like the short term element of Nebraska football and long term angle of Nebraska football. Because if you think about it, with the short term, with Scott Frost and his current situation, I mean, think about the influx of in the portal, right? Casey Thompson, Chubba Purdy, Trey Palmer, Bushini the punter, a kicker's coming. Like they were able to go into the transfer portal and get dudes that can come in and and help right away. Like if they didn't, if if they weren't able to go get Palmer and Purdy and Thompson and, and a punter and a kicker. Like things could be a lot different. Without those guys, next season could be a little bleak. So there is the short term saving right there, and then there's the long term angle on it. The reality is all the changes to college football over the last 30 years, 25, 20, 20, 30 years, have hurt Nebraska football. All of them. The television explosion, the population shift to the south, conference realignment, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all these things have made it harder for Nebraska to recruit and land top shelf talent. And while I think all of our heads are still kind of spinning with this NIL world that we're living in and new transfer portal rules, I think Patrick may be right that it could actually be what finally levels things for Nebraska in some ways. The lack of recruiting base in the 500-mile radius is a real thing. You can poo-poo it if you want. You can say, ah, take the, take, the kid from, take the kid from Lexington and go play football. Like, okay, I mean, you can poo-poo that if you want, but if the lack of recruiting base, the lack of recruiting base is a real thing. So how do you overcome that? Because you can't, I mean, it's not, that's not changing. Nebraska was able to overcome it from 1960, you know, 1962 to 2000 because they were the, one of the only schools on TV, right? Like they 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 had a they had a unique style and identity, all those things. But so, how do you overcome the lack of recruiting base? Well, I think what Patrick's saying is how you overcome it is with NIL and transfers. Nebraska could become a big time NIL spot 
if, keyword, if they embrace it. And that's what I think is interesting because by they, I mean the state, the fan base, and the program itself. And I really think that might take some time for people. Because, and listen, I feel like I can say this being a Nebraskan, born and raised in Lincoln and spent, you know, shoot, what is it, 15 years in Omaha as well. Like, Nebraska likes to think of itself as, you know, we don't take any shortcuts, we do it the right way, et cetera, et cetera. And culturally, paying kind of big NIL money and living in the transfer portal, it kind of just doesn't feel like Nebraska football. Right? Paying big NIL money and living in the transfer portal and all that stuff, that feels more like of a Miami thing or a USC thing. That's not a Nebraska thing. Nebraska, we do we we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We put it in an honest nine-to-five, and we put our nose to the grindstone. We do, we do it the right way. But Nebraska may have to get over that a little bit. Nebraska probably needs to embrace it. Because... Again, the lifeblood of college football is recruiting. If you really want to talk about winning championships, not saying you can't have a nice little successful program, you're winning games, but if you really want to talk about winning championships, I'm talking you know, competing and winning Big Ten championships and competing and winning college football playoff, all that stuff. There is a direct correlation to top 10 recruiting classes and college football playoff appearances. And the way things are currently constructed, Nebraska just will likely never be able to get to that point consistently where it's a consistent top 10 recruiter. And maybe, again, maybe, maybe NIL is the great equalizer. Maybe NIL, along with the transfer portal, is a way for Nebraska to even the playing field a little bit after 20, 25, 30 years of every single event kind of working against Nebraska. I know, I, I think for me personally, I've been so blinded by the shock of the NIL rules and the transfer portal rules and the feelings of concerns that I have of the overall sport that I, I hadn't really thought of it strictly from a Nebraska football standpoint. Like, I've more just been like, whoa, these guys are getting paid now? Okay, well, whoa. Like, okay, everybody can just transfer and go anywhere. Okay, whoa, there's how many guys in the portal? Like, I've, been, I've just been kind of like, so blinded by that that I haven't sat and thought, let's just focus on this from a Nebraska football standpoint. Might be a positive thing. Nebraska used to be one of the handful of programs that held all the advantages, and that has changed over the last two decades. And maybe now with these seismic, enormous changes to the structure of college football, maybe Nebraska can have some advantages again in the name of NIL and the transfer portal. Next take, sticking with NIL. Listen, it is what it is, and I'm, I'm fine with the players getting paid, uh, but I, I've, I've kind of found I, I've kind of I've kind of found it funny how basically these college football and college basketball programs, they're just buying players. They're just buying player, paying players, and it's masqueraded as NIL. This isn't NIL. This is paying players. When I, when I talk about NIL being an advantage for Nebraska in my last take I just talked about here, I'm basically talking about getting in the muddy game of straight-up buying players. That's what I'm talking about. Because, again, let, again let's, just, let's just drop the charade. Let's just drop the charade. 
Nick Saban has said it. These coaches have said it that are in the fray. Like, NIL, Nick Saban has said this. Nick Saban has basically said, NIL allows you to just buy players. He's buy them. There's a really interesting story in The Athletic about the, the NIL world and all that stuff, and there was a quote from Mike Caspino, who's an attorney, and he's represented a bunch of these athletes in these, in I, I'm doing air quotes here, NIL contracts for college football programs. Here's the quote from Mike Caspino, again, who's, who's dealt with a lot of these contracts for these players. He goes, this is the hierarchy. Five-star quarterbacks, they're getting $2 million a year. The next most sought-after players are defensive linemen edge rushers. They're getting seven figures. The next is a stud offensive lineman with quick feet. They're getting in the high six figures. Everyone else is a hodgepodge, but in the six-figure range. Let's just call it what it is. This is buying players. Side note, holy crap, $2 million for a five-star quarterback? Am I the one that's still like, it's just, it's still taking some getting used to hearing that kind of stuff. Whoa. I remember, I've told this, I remember getting a $100 handshake from a guy in Lawrence, Kansas, because I filled in, he was out of town around Christmas, I hosted the Bill Self TV show, the Bill Self show. You guys have seen the Scott Frost show, whatever, like, Coach Self was like, well, let's have Ball do it. He wants to be in TV. And so, like, I filled in and hosted it one time. And then the host saw me, like, two weeks later and shook my hand. There's a $100 bill in it. And I remember I got back on the bus after the game when he did it. And I was like, man, I'm about to – I'm about, I'm going to be ineligible and all this stuff. This is 100 bucks, And I actually fucking did something for it. Now these dudes are like, before they ever play a down, 800000 500000 a million. It's like – just, I don't know, sorry, the side note, it's back to the point. I thought this NIL rule would eventually seep into recruiting. Like, I, I, I remember thinking that, but it's amazing how fast this has happened. And I guess for me, I just thought this NIL thing would be, and at least a part of it would be kind of legit athletes making money off themselves in terms of advertising for businesses and whatnot. And while that maybe has happened on a very small extent, right, what has really happened is it sounds like a lot of these universities have put together these collectives where these big money boosters are pooling money all together to just buy players, for lack of a better term. That's what's happening. And, you know, the long-term sustainability of this, who knows? The long-term positive benefits to the overall health of college football and college basketball, who knows? I do feel like there needs to be some parameters and guidelines on this thing at some point. But again, I just let's just call it like it is. This is just paying players and buying players, masquerading as NIL. Let's just call it like it is. Next take. Got a bunch of Husker football takes here. So, you know, I, this, this Dublin-Ireland trip that's happening, um, I, I still think... This is just me. I still think Nebraska should have tried to get out of that game. I remember saying that back in January, and I I still believe it today. I think given all of the new that's going on with Nebraska football, new offensive coordinator, new new offense, new quarterback, new skill guys, new, 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 and it being a week zero start where they got to travel, you know, a long ways in a different time zone – I would have tried to keep things as normal as possible. 
I would so much rather be playing that game in Evanston, Illinois at Northwestern than in Dublin, Ireland. And you know what's interesting? So I was I was out in uh, I was out on uh, in Lincoln the other day and I had a guy come up to me and he asked me a simple question. He's like, "Hey, why is why is Nebraska going to Ireland to play a game?" And before I could even say anything, because he, he followed it up with, who is that game even really for? And it kind of like, I couldn't really come up with a great answer. It kind of stunned me. I was like, okay. Now, I will say, like, pre-pandemic and everything, it seemed like a better idea. I'm not going to lie. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Pre-pandemic, it seemed like a better idea. But to his second point, like... Who is that? Like, I'm not even really sure who that game's really for. Like, I can't, deep down inside, I can't imagine the players are that fired up for it. Fans, like, if I'm wrong, y'all can tweet at me, email me. Like, the fan base, given the state of the program, and most importantly, given the state of the pandemic and everything, like, I'm really not sure how many Nebraska fans will actually go. I don't know how big Northwestern's fan base realistically is. Nebraska usually takes over the home stadium in Evanston anyways. So, like, you kind of go, who is this even for? Because, like, if you're Trey Palmer, are you that fired up to go to Dublin in late August? Like, are, I don't know. And I have to imagine that deep down inside, the coaches aren't all that fired up for this trip either. All the stress, all the anxiety, all the work, all the pressure, and they got to go to Ireland in week zero. So, I don't know. Like I said a few months ago, and I'm if I was Nebraska, I would have done all that I can to get out of that game being in Dublin. That's just me. Now, again, you come from a guy that I have no idea what those contracts look like and all those things, but I think especially when the pandemic was really still surging and around, you could have played the pandemic card and gotten out of that. I would have assumed so. But now, it's. I mean, obviously, that game's happening there. That game is happening. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that – has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Next take, in the wake of the Casey Rogers transfer, which was surprising, I think we all were were surprised by that, and given the incredibly thin situation now up front on defense, I mean, it was already kind of a code red on the D-line, and then it lost one of its most experienced defensive linemen in Casey Rogers. Now, how good is Casey Rogers? I don't know. I don't think he's great, but he's played a lot of football. He's an older guy. But it, it that news got me to thinking about this. It got me to thinking about the word wasted. And there there have kind of been a lot of wasted seasons because of one thing or another over the last 
four years or hell, even further back. It could be a player, a side of the ball, a this, that. Like, st- if you think about it, sticking with Frost tenure, like you have Husker seasons wasted kind of because of or lost because of. I always felt like they wasted Adrian Martinez on a crop of really bad wide receivers. They wasted Wandell Robinson on zero running backs because so then Wandell had to slide over and play running back. Nebraska wasted a great black shirt defense last year on a bad offense and bad special teams. I thought that defense, that was the best defense since the 2009-2010 crew. Now, it wasn't as good as the 2009 group or 2010 group. It was, just, it was right there, though. And then to, I mean, to even expand to it historically, speaking of 2009, I mean, it wasted that 2009 defense with just a horrific, horrific offense. And it kind of just goes on and on and on. There's always kind of like one thing wasting the season. Which then goes to this year, and what you hope isn't the case, is this going to be maybe a wasted year on no defensive line depth and talent? I hope not. Nebraska and that coaching staff, they need to get busy, and they need to hit on some guys in the transfer portal. Next take. This isn't a new thought, but it bears repeating. Sometimes I think uh, sometimes stating the obvious and saying things out loud as much as possible, it's important. So obviously, Nebraska's lost. Nebraska's in its position it's in. Four straight losing seasons, things haven't gone well under Scott Frost because of the details, but most importantly, and these kind of go hand in hand, Nebraska's inability to win close games over the first four years. Nobody in in the Power Five has lost more one-score games than Nebraska has over the last four years. Nobody. And you, you obviously, when that's going on, you get worried that, about something being in the building over there, being in the water over there. Well, if you think about it, a building, just stick with the term, is just a collection of people. It's not the literal building. It's the collection of people inside of that building. And in theory, if you switch out the people, you may get a different result. And so on a broad, simple way, way oversimplified level. Hopefully an infusion of new people can change the close game thing. Because you got a bunch of new coaches, you got a bunch of new players, you got a new play caller, you got a new quarterback, you're going to have new specialists, punter, kicker, punt returner. Could be a new leading wide receiver and a new running back. All, if you think about it, all the headlining important spots on a team in close games, all new. Like when you think about, right now, if you start to think about a close game, especially on the offensive side of the ball, okay, you think of the, who's calling the plays, who's the quarterback, who's who's your kicker, who's, right? Like new, new, new. And you would think all of the new people don't carry that here-we-go-again stuff with them. Right? Like... Casey Thompson doesn't know what – he wasn't at Michigan State last year. He doesn't remember what that – I don't – right? Trey Palmer wasn't at Minnesota last year. He wasn't – you know, like those guys – Mark Whipple wasn't he – was, he didn't coach the Iowa game last year. So they don't carry that burden with them. So I was just thinking about – you know, I was thinking about that and just kind of, you know, okay, how do you fix the, the, 
the close game thing, the bad and close games thing. Part of that answer, new people in key spots. That's kind of happened. Next take. Again, I'm, I'm stating things that aren't necessarily original thoughts, but I, I, it's just I'm writing down. This is a stream of my consciousness, people. This is take a palooza. All right? Man, would it be nice to see a good tone set early in the season for Nebraska football. You know, Scott Frost uses that term like catch a wave of momentum and get all this stuff. Like that just hasn't happened. The, if you think about it, the tone has been set to the bad early in every year since Scott Frost has been the head coach. Year one, yeah, the first game, the Akron game was canceled because of a thunderstorm. And then you lost the first game to, to Colorado at home where you led late in the fourth quarter. Year two, you're up 17 to nothing at halftime on the road at Colorado. You collapse, you pee your pants, you lose in overtime. Year three, you really controlled a good portion of the game on the road at Northwestern. You have the ball inside the red zone a handful of times, and you cannot figure out a way to score points. You, so you lose the game on the road at Northwestern. Oh, by the way, the Wisconsin game, the second game of the season, got canceled because of COVID. I think Nebraska had a great shot to beat Wisconsin that year. And then last year, I really feel like that Cam taylor Britt safety, when he was a punt returner, Set the tone in a bad way where then Nebraska goes on to lose at Illinois. It's just every year so far, there's been a, a tone-setting game to the bad right away. And so I know we did this last year with the Illinois game, but man, that Northwestern game to start this season is so damn important. It just It would be nice to see what getting off to a good start and setting a positive tone would be like for this team in this program. Not saying it would guarantee anything. Certainly would. But it would be nice and interesting to see something good happen to this program early in the season for once and see if they could kind of catch that wave because, damn, they have gotten knocked over right away through the first four years. Next take, switching to some Nebraska basketball real quick. So, I have two thoughts, really, on Nebraska basketball. Um, nothing too earth-shattering so far in kind of the reconfiguration of, of things for Fred Hoiberg. Um, certainly still some time for some roster altering, so we'll see. Baylor Shireman, could, he could hop on board in Nebraska, and all of a sudden that changes things quite a bit. But Nebraska did hire a new assistant coach, and they did land a recruit in the transfer portal that I see a lot of value in, and that's Sam Griesel. With Griesel... North Dakota State transfer. I've watched him play a handful of times. Good player. Now, I don't know if he's a I don't know if he's a a guy that's going to come in and light the Big 10 on fire kind of a dude. I don't know if he's a guy that's going to come in and put Nebraska over the top, but that doesn't mean I'm not really fired up that homeboy's going to be played at Nebraska because I am. I think there is a ton of value in him being on the floor and on this team. For a bunch of reasons. He's a big guard, about 6'5". He's a unique matchup where you can kind of bully point guards. He's smart. He's experienced. He's a tough kid. But two of the bigger reasons I think he'll help is, number one, he's a Lincoln kid. He's a local Lincoln East Spartan. I think he will be – I think Griso will be someone the fan base can rally around. And Nebraska's kind of lacked that 
since Fred Hoiberg's been here. First of all, there's been no roster continuity, and there's just hasn't really been that that player or group of players that the fan base has really fallen in love with and rallied around. There hasn't been a player that everyone in the fan base really connects with. And I think Sam Griesel will be someone the fans get fired up about because he's a local kid. And then reason number two is, you know, I think he could have some pride in having Nebraska across his chest. Which is something I think the program has also lacked. Someone with legit pride in playing for the University of Nebraska. Someone with legitimate pride when they slide that jersey on, it says Nebraska across their chest. That shit means something to them. Representing the state, representing the fans. You know, culture on some level kind of just starts with pride beyond yourself. Got to have pride in yourself, obviously, and pride in what you do. But a lot of what culture is is taking pride outside of you and what you're a part of. I think think, think Sam Greaser will take great pride in putting on that uniform and representing the Big Red Inn. And then with the new assistant coach uh, hire, Adam Howard, he comes from South Alabama. Couple of thoughts. Um, number one, he's a defensive guy, which is exactly what Fred Hoiberg needs on this staff. I've told you that I think one of the things that is ha, that Hoiberg has missed on is having someone. This is mainly last year, someone with defensive expertise as a full time assistant. Doc Sadler was not a full time assistant; he couldn't do on the floor coaching. Now, that guy on paper could be this new assistant coach, Adam Howard. So that's good. And then the thing that'll be interesting is Hoiberg has referenced a few times in discussing Adam Howard and, and the hiring him and all that stuff. He, in, he's referenced a few times in discussing him the word zone and matchup zone. And I wonder if Nebraska is going to be a matchup zone team next year. And usually matchup zone teams sprinkle in a little three-quarter court pressure too. Now, I really don't know. This is just me reading between the lines in April from what Fred Hoiberg has said and talked about with Howard and then kind of what Howard and his pedigree is. Matchup zone or zone in general. I, I Listen, you know what? I don't necessarily hate the idea because I don't know that under Hoiberg, Given what Fred Hoiberg wants the identity of this team to be, pace, space, threes, offense, I don't know if they're ever going to be a great kick-your-ass man-to-man defensive team. I just don't know if they'll ever be that. So going kind of the, the gimmick route of a matchup zone, and I don't mean gimmick in a negative way, but it's a gimmick a little bit. Going the gimmick route of a matchup zone isn't isn't necessarily a bad idea. It's kind of what Dana Altman does. I mean, not kind of. It's kind of it's it is what he does. I mean, he'll play man, but dude plays like at Creighton and at Oregon. Dana Altman hangs his hat on switching defenses, mixing some three quarter court and a little full court press. But most of all, he plays a lot of matchup zone, and it can it can throw teams out of sync, out of rhythm. I played it. I I played it at at Creighton under Coach Altman. Like it would, you could feel it when you'd be playing teams. It would stymie the shit out of some teams. 
And the hardest thing about a matchup zone is teams aren't sure what they what what to run against it. Do they run their man-to-man offense or do they run their zone offense to get it? Because it, it starts kind of looking like a zone, so you think you need to get into your 2-3 look. But then it kind of matches up. And then what's hard about it, then it's like, okay, it's man-to-man. Well, man-to-man, you usually know what teams are going to do because they have rules. They switch this screen. They hedge that screen. They'll pass that cutter there, whatever. Well, the thing that's hard about a matchup zone sometimes is the only rule is there kind of are no rules. Sometimes you run with a cutter. Sometimes you switch a screen. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you bump that cutter off. Like, that can get hard on what you're going to do. Plus, anymore, most players and teams... They know how to run plays, not make plays. And there is a difference between the two. Most players and teams know how to run plays, not make plays. And against a matchup zone, you kind of got to know how to make a play. So we'll see what happens. Again, I'm not sure exactly. I'm just reading between the lines. And I will say this again, on paper, I don't mind it. I don't hate it. The Dick Bob Podcast is powered by my good friends at Runza. You know, a few things make me more proud than the fact that Runza supports my podcast because as a Nebraskan, I've been a Runza fan my entire life. I lived down the street from a Runza growing up. was a blast to go there as a kid. Sometimes I'd even ride my bike there with my buddies. I vividly remember one of our very first elementary school field trips was to Runza. Everyone loved it. I remember going to Runza in high school for lunches with all my high school friends. And I've told you guys this, one of the happiest days at Kansas my freshman year was discovering a Runza in Lawrence, Kansas, it was like finding a little slice of home when I was away from home. And now as an adult, it's great to share runs with my kiddos who absolutely love the deliciousness of Runza. It's a little Runza story from yours truly. And you know what the menu is. Just outstanding, amazing Runza sandwiches. Oh my gosh, a piping hot cheese Runza? Mmm, that sounds good right now. Incredible burgers. The best fries on the planet. The salads are great, especially the Southwest chicken salad, my personal favorite. It's just awesome food. So whether it's lunch, dinner, a little snack, doesn't matter. Runza is the spot. You need to go download the mobile app. It's in the app store. You can order ahead, skip the line, plus you can earn rewards as well. Runza makes it all better. Next take. So in one of the biggest bits of kind of shocking news over the last few weeks was the sudden retirement of Jay Wright at Villanova. I was stunned. I was at my uh, I was at my six-year-old daughter's soccer practice, and as we were walking up to practice, I just saw the news hit on my phone. I was like, whoa. I mean, I crossed paths with Jay a few times this year, calling games, uh, even chatted with him in New York at the Big East Tournament for a second, and I did not get the sense that he was going to retire at all. And, you know, according to Jay Wright, um, he felt like now was the time to retire because he was feeling a little burned out. I mean, he's he talked about how, in his press conference, how he used to be kind of naturally on and have that edge all the time. And that he kind of felt that dwindling. And the reality is, he's 60. That's the thing about GQJ. You know, he looks like George Clooney and he looks so damn good that you, you think he's younger than he is. He's 60. He looks great, but he's 60. So he retires. And here's here's my take on trying to read into why he retired. Being 60 and feeling worn down certainly is a factor. Like, I mean, absolutely. Because keep in mind, on top of this, he just came off of out of the Olympics with Team USA 
where he was an assistant coach. And, I mean, that was a grind to be in for a few years, being Team USA, being overseas, all that stuff, all the practices, all that, on top of all his Villanova duties. But I think it's also a combination of that and the changing landscape of college basketball with, you know, the NIL and transfer portal. I think things are changing so quickly and so dramatically that on some level, Jay Wright felt like he didn't have the energy to deal with that stuff. And beyond just that, I don't I don't know if how Jay Wright ran Villanova's program completely fits in college basketball nowadays moving forward. I don't know if that model totally works anymore. Villanova is a culture program. Probably the best culture in college basketball over the last eight, nine years. The biggest thing culture needs is continuity. And it also needs patience. And that's what Nova has had better than anyone. And continuity in today's college basketball is really challenging. Nova has been able to get great continuity and guys were willing to kind of wait their turn. And then that's where it just kind of the program kind of runs itself. It's it's the teachings and culture being passed down from Ryan Archidiacono to Jalen Brunson to Colin Gillespie. I'm just talking one position. Boom. It's it's Josh Hart to Phil Booth to Mikhail Bridges to like. It's going to be really challenging in this NIL transfer portal world to capture that, and I think Jay Wright kind of recognized that. So when you combine that with being 60 years old and getting older and also the incredible run that he's been on, I think he just felt like, you know what, now's the time to step down. Just, it's incredible, man. Two titles over the last six years, three Final Fours over the last six years, multiple Big East titles. So Jay Wright's done at Villanova. And man, am I just, I'm going to miss him. Selfishly, I'll tell you, I was always, whenever I'd get assignments from Fox, I was always really fired up when I got a Villanova assignment. Because I love talking to Jay Wright. I love talking to Jay Wright. I love calling their games. I love studying them on film. And I'm telling you, I'm not just it. Like, Jay Wright is a genuinely great human being. He is a great guy. Authentic, real, genuine, sincere. If you saw, after every game, he would always send a tweet out, complimenting, win or lose, complimenting the other team's program and fan base and players. Like, And that's not like, you know, like eye roll, kiss it. No, like that's genuine. And, you know, for me, he took a sincere interest in me. Uh, he was all, he was just a great guy to talk to. And his teams are just incredible, man. I, when I think of Jay Wright, like, Jay Wright's teams played with, with such, a, such collective intelligence, collective purpose, and he wed confidence, aggressiveness, and IQ all, in, all together. And sometimes all those things can be at odds. Like, if you, if you tell players, hey, be aggressive and attack, well, intelligence and IQ can kind of dwindle. But conversely, if you scream, be smart to your guys, aggressiveness and confidence can kind of dwindle. 
he managed to wed all those things really, really nicely. Here's Jay Wright's final nine years at Villanova. This is his final nine years at Nova. Two titles, three Final Fours, seven Big East regular season titles, five Big East tournament titles. He won 83% of his games. He went 130 and 31 in the Big East regular season. And he was 22 and 6 in the NCAA tournament. Wow. I and I've told people. I've told every I've told a lot of people and they've asked since I've started calling games. So for which I've been doing for almost 10 years now. So since I've started calling games, that 2018 Villanova team is the best team I've ever seen. Brunson, Bridges, DiVincenzo, Eric Paschal, Amari Spellman, Phil Booth. That team was absolutely incredible. So, wow. Jay Wright retires. I'm going to miss him. Cheers to an incredible career. Next take. Sticking with Jay Wright for a second in, you know, with so now you have Coach K retires. Roy Williams retired last day, about a year ago at this time. And now Jay Wright all retired. I mean, that's three Hall of Famers and giants in the game all retiring in a one-year span. And that's what was kind of so shocking about Jay's sudden retirement is because I thought with Coach K gone now that Jay Wright was going to kind of slide into being him and maybe Bill Self, but Jay Wright was going to maybe be the face of college basketball from a coaching perspective. But now he's gone. So you do kind of go, okay, who is the face of college basketball now from a coaching perspective? And when you think about that, like three guys jump out at me. Bill Self, Tom Izzo, and then Mark Few a little bit, but like as weird as it sounds, when you're not at a power conference school, it's kind of hard a little bit. Like with Mark Few, I mean, his his resume and what he's done speaks for itself, but just for whatever, it, him being a Gonzaga kind of makes it challenging for him. You know, you're in the West Coast Conference. It's just a little different. But then after those three guys that stand out, you get to the, you know, your squat, Scott Drew, Tony Bennett type guys, where to me, those guys don't have the stature yet, in my opinion. So, you know, we talk about all the changes in the landscape to college basketball. Very interesting transition in more ways than one for college hoops. Using some giants on the sidelines, Jay Wright being the most recent one. Next take. So, you know, I I was thinking about the with you I've I've talked a lot about NIL here and and I've been thinking about with college basketball. And I remember predicting and hoping this would be the case on the front end. But one of the one of the positives you've seen from NIL has been that it has helped retain the top shelf great players in the sport in staying in college basketball for an extra year or two, which that's that was always a big problem, right? Guys either one and done, or the second they get any sort of sniff of the NBA draft, they're out of there. Like it has been, it's been. Great in keeping that top-shelf talent. Kofi Coburn last year, Johnny Juzang last year, coming back. This year, you've already seen a lot of it. The reigning National Player of the Year, Oscar Shibway from Kentucky, is coming back. I mean, you haven't seen a National Player of the Year return in a long time. And then even basically all of North Carolina's team. You know, Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, Armando Baycott, all those guys are coming back. So that is great. But there's no doubt that, you know, NIL and these changes giveth and they taketh away. Because 
NIL and these changes also cause a ton of movement in the portal as well. So it's it's weird. It's great for retaining some top talent and keeping them in, in the sport of college basketball, but it's challenging because it creates some movement as well on the portal, and it makes achieving some continuity maybe at certain places challenging. And it certainly makes recruiting a different animal, either on the front end or with high school kids or with transfers. The reality is, basically, what can you pay me is a part of the recruiting process now? Or what can you pay me is a part of the decision-making process of whether or not they're going to stay in college basketball? Which is, again, I keep it's still just wild to say out loud, and it's certainly going to take some getting used to. Next take. Uh, you know, with, with the NBA real quick. So I've, I've, I'll be honest with you. I have a really hard time sizing up Kevin Durant historically. I, I certainly recognize his raw skills and talent. I mean, he's, I mean, the dude's a unicorn. He's seven footer shoot. One of the best shooters handle it. Like he's arguably the greatest scorer ever, but just, he just was swept by the Boston Celtics. And by now you've seen the the viral take from Charles Barkley that was very, very interesting. And I'm not going to lie to you, there's parts of what Charles Barkley said that I really agree with. And one of the, to paraphrase what Charles Barkley was talking about is, is basically there's a big difference between being the bus driver or just riding the bus. Talking about kind of being being the man on a team where it is your franchise, it's your team, you're setting the culture, you're leading the charge every single day, no matter what. You're the guy. There's a big difference between that and being a complimentary piece. There's a big difference between being Chris Bosh with the Heat and being LeBron with the Heat. It's a big difference between being Jordan with the Bulls and Horace Grant with the Bulls. And... Sure, Kevin Durant won two finals MVPs with Golden State, but don't kid yourself, he hopped on that Golden State Warrior bus. I don't give a shit what anybody says. They had already won a title. They had just won 73 games, the NBA record in regular season. He hopped on the Golden State Warrior bus. That was Steph's team. That's Steph's culture. And all I'm saying is like, when Kevin Durant's been the guy, been, to steal Charles Barkley's analogy here, been the bus driver, I guess his teams haven't won at the level that you would expect from someone who some consider a top 10, top 15 player of all time. I don't put him there, personally. I don't. He's not in my top 10 of all time. You know, I got like Bill Simmons, who I love. Listen to him all the time. He has Durant as a top 10 guy of all time. I just don't see it like that. So it's just very interesting to I, to hear Charles Barkley say that because it kind of like, I, I just have a really, I'm not sure there's a all-time great player that I have. I have a really hard time sizing him up and where, when the chips fall, where he's going to kind of fall in my final rankings, for lack of a better term. I will say this, two weeks into the playoffs, I think Golden State and Boston have looked like the two best teams. Now, some of that could be the injury situations with Devin Booker in Phoenix and Middleton with the Bucks, 
But I just I think things look pretty good for Golden State and Boston right now. Those two teams are rolling, man. That would be my bet right now and who's playing in the finals in June, which would be a really, really fun finals if we got it. All right, last take. I still can't believe Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Am I the only one that's still, like, every day, like, that pops into my head? Like, that shit really happened. Oh, my God. Literally, every day ever since this has happened, like, just, it's kind of just popped into my head. Like, whoo, Will Smith really slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. And I've said it, but, you know, I guess I've said it to my friends. We've kind of talked about it. Like, it was ridiculous. Uh, like, uh, let me preface this with 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 this real quick. I've always said, there's not a, I love Will Smith. Will Smith is probably the greatest entertainer of my life. Like, when you talk multifaceted. I love The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's one of my five favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, Will Smith's movies are fantastic. He's a great actor. He, I've always loved Will Smith as a rapper. Like, I've just always adored Will Smith. You know when you get that hypothetical, like, all right, hypothetical dinner for four people. Anybody can go. Who are you taking? Will Smith has almost always been one of the guys that I'm saying I'd have Will Smith. So let me preface saying, like, this is coming from someone that loves Will Smith. But, like, obviously what Will did was ridiculous and unacceptable. And I still think it sets a really bad precedent that nothing happened to Will Smith in the moment, in my opinion. It is unbelievable to me that he was able to stay inside that building. Dude walked up and slapped the host. What? I mean, that's, that's a bad precedent. And listen, you could be Johnny Tough Guy, like, man, ever need to shut up and get smacked. It's like, okay, grow up, high school jock bully. Especially, you know... Adam Carolla had a great analogy when he talked about it. He was like, you also got to understand the situation you're walking into and the context that you're in. He goes, I can't date. Adam Carolla's example is this. He goes, I can't date a porn star and then go to work with her and then get mad when she has sex with someone else on while she's doing her thing. Like, dude, she's a porn star. Like, you go there. This is what's going to happen. Dude, you're a star. You're at the Oscars. The host roasts and cracks jokes on the people that are there. And it was such a mild joke. But man, set a really bad precedent that nothing happened. But I will say this. Now, I'm one of those guys, like, I like Will Will Smith so much. I read Will Smith's book. Really, anybody that likes Will Smith, like, Highly recommend it. It is a great book. I couldn't put it down. But re- I will say this. Reading his book made me understand that moment for Will way more. Two things. Number one, Will and Jada have a very weird relationship. Very layered, a lot of baggage, lots of fights, lots of issues. Then there's obviously the whole affair she had with one of... Jaden, their son's R&B singer friend, like very, they got a weird thing. I also think they're one of those people that share too much. Like, listen, I'm all for, I like being vulnerable, but like the whole red table thing, like, man, some of the stuff, like, just keep that in the family. But most importantly, reading the book, the biggest moment, you read the book, and one thing is abundantly clear, the biggest moment in Will Smith's life was when Will saw his father hit his mother. Will was like 
God, he might have been 11 or 12 years old when he, he saw his father hit his mother. And he didn't do anything. He just froze. And Will talked throughout the book how he always felt like a coward after that. He always, he always, that was the word he used, always felt like a coward. And I think in a roundabout way, he's still that 12-year-old, like, is inside of him. He's trying to make up for that. He's trying to make up for that by seizing an opportunity to make up for that moment and protect a woman he loved. So it's, it's one of those things, reading the book helped me understand that moment, even though it still is unbelievable to think about every day for me. All right, I am tapping out. Holy crap. That's a, I'm tapping out on takes. Jeez. Appreciate everybody downloading, supporting, listening to the, to the pod, man. Remember, you can email me, nick at nickbod.com. I need to go get a glass of water, man. Catch you next time with the Nick Bob Podcast. A Huda Media Production.